Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That uh, with the AEW edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week in the world of AEW. We're talking Dynamite, Collision, Rampage, and some AEW news as well, all coming at you in the next 30 to 60 minutes. On the way into this show, I would be remiss, of course, if I did not remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Take a little extra time. Leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live for you right here on the show. Also, do not forget to head on over to Twitter and give us a follow at Getting Overcast. Not only that, the social media landscape seems to have changed a little bit since the last time we spoke. Head on over to Threads and follow us there as well at Getting Overcast. Overcast. We will see if that actually works and becomes something that we utilize. But for now, we will double message our stuff on both platforms at Getting Overcast again on Twitter and on threads. You're going to want to go there for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, all that good stuff. We're also going to be posting a questionnaire at the end of this week regarding the formatting of the show going forward. And I would love all of your votes on that. A reminder for some of you that I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well. So visit us at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Become an official getting overhead for only $5 a month. That $5 supports the show, myself, Vintage Chris Vanini, and it provides you with bonus audio and news posts every single week. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Now, look, before we get into the full breakdowns of Dynamite Collision and Rampage. I do have a a couple quick thoughts about AEW to kick off the show. Let's start with Collision, which was week three, episode three, I should say, of the Saturday night program. Now, they did a WWE Superstars style like intro with six short promos previewing three key matches on the card. I thought that was really cool. WWE actually did that occasionally during the pandemic, but it's been a while since they've done that again. I always like it. It's old school, just has that nice kind of way to get you into the show and preview. Now, I didn't think any of the promos were good, but they never are. They never were back in the day when WWF did them. They weren't necessarily during the pandemic when WWE did them, and they weren't great here. It's just more, these are the faces you're going to see on the show. Now, while I love the aesthetics of Collision still, and I've mentioned that, the Elton John theme, it's just ill-fitting. It doesn't hit hard enough. I think they had a good idea in that the lyrics and the context of the song work. But a soft rock song from that time period for a wrestling program with the grunge aspect or the the tough aspect of Collision in 2023, it's not it. What I would have done and what I do believe AEW should do is remix the song. I don't know if it would be hard rock or perhaps rap or whatever, but... They need a modern version of that song, not the original Elton John song. So I doubt they do it. It seems like they're pretty happy with what they got. To me, the song doesn't fit. Now, in terms of the show, look, this week it was two hours of wrestling with very little storytelling. I'd say there are 
one and a half legitimate storylines on the entire show through three weeks. And I was willing to give AEW a break the first two weeks because of Forbidden Door. That show and the type of show it is throws a wrench into your booking just naturally. But this week, there really was no excuse. Beyond that, this show fell off a cliff in terms of quality compared to the first two weeks. Really, only the main event stood out to me. And look, I'm not trying to shit on the crowd, but Hamilton, I mean, I know it's a smaller Canadian city compared to like a Toronto or a Montreal or an Edmonton, but man, they were weak as hell. This was not a good taping, I would say. Now, all of that said, Dynamite on Wednesday, I thought was fantastic. Much improved from the post Forbidden Door episode. There were some creative issues as usual. We're gonna talk about those as we always do. But from an entertainment standpoint, it felt like the two hours I spent watching Dynamite live on Wednesday night were completely worth my time. And that just candidly has not always been the case recently. I don't think I need to tell you my opinion on Rampage. It was again, a completely worthless show. So again, you look at this week and I watched five hours of AEW programming. How much of it did I feel was worthwhile? I would say two and a half to three hours of it. And, you know, that's what we used to say about WWE. Now, Raw and SmackDown, they're operating extremely well. Raw in particular, I think, is knocking it out of the park. NXT is knocking it out of the park. But there just is this issue with this extra programming from AEW. And I do wonder if and when they're going to figure out how to put on all of these shows and make them all worth watching. Right now, it just kind of seems like there's way too many tournaments and qualifiers. I know this is a very small time period in which they're trying to do it. The Canadian tour bumped up against um, Forbidden Door, which bumped up against the debut of Collision. And they're trying to also promote Blood and Guts. And they're trying to also promote Grand Slam while also promoting All In and All Out and a video game launching. It's just, it's a lot going on. And look, maybe everything's going to shake out. And by the time we get into August and they really start pressing for that all-in build, it's going to make a lot more sense. But right now, it's chaotic and it's just a lot of things happening without much rhyme or reason. Speaking of all-in, they crossed a 74,000 ticket distribution threshold. Now, I don't have the number of tickets that were actually sold versus perhaps given out. It doesn't really matter. Uh, 74 is incredible. Now, I think we talked about on the show expectations for all in, and I gave different categories of what I thought success might be. I believe I said, and I don't have it in front of me, that 45,000 would be successful and worthwhile doing it. 65,000 would be a massive success, incredible. They're past that now. They're at 74,000. And you can bet your ass that Tony Khan is going to do every single thing he possibly can to get the all-time wrestling record. I guess, at least compared to WWE for a show in the United States or in the United Kingdom. So I would expect that to happen. I do find it kind of wild. I wasn't surprised that there was a ton of interest in AEW because, look, they've existed for basically four years and they've never run Europe. So the first time they're running to do a big show like this was very smart. I've said that numerous times on the podcast, and I knew it was going to sell well. But by selling well, again, I figured 50 to 65,000. Once you like pass that 65,000 mark, you're getting into rarefied air. And for them to sell this many tickets without a single match announced, without us knowing whether it's going to be on pay-per-view or live streaming on Max or on TV, 
it's just really, it's odd and at the same time impressive. And what it leads you to question is, is the fever for AEW over there really that strong? Is it the belief that All In is going to be a really special type of event because it's not called All Out? You know, they're going back to that original name convention that was used for the show pre-AEW that was run by Cody Rhodes, The Young Bucks, and Kenny Omega. Is it going to be a show that includes a lot of um, European talent and maybe some NJPW talent plus AEW? Is it going to be a super show, basically, is what I'm trying to say. I think that's probably where it's going, and my guess is fans know that. So that's why they're pining for tickets and going so deep on it. Also, look, Europe was starved for wrestling during the pandemic. And WWE going over there, doing Clash at the Castle, massively successful. Money in the Bank, massively successful. But let's just be candid. Neither of those are in a venue like Wembley Stadium. AEW, they put it on the table and they said, we're going to do it and people are going to come. And I would guess that this is even exceeding their expectations. But man, again, super impressive stuff. I do think they're probably going to wind up breaking the all-time attendance record for a single show. I mean, they're going to try. And if they're at 74,000 with like six or seven weeks left, they have every chance in the world to do it. I'm going to expect it. The question, though, is what happens after that? Why are ratings in the United States down if there's so much fever for them or fervor for them probably is a better word in Europe? And if this show is successful, I'm talking about beyond the the sales metric, but like an entertainment metric, then what does that mean for AEW over there? Are they going to be a massive promotion in Europe? Or is this just literally a one-time deal where they hadn't been over there, they just threw all their eggs in one basket, it works, what happens when they try to do this again? Are they going to be able to do this a second time? So there's a lot of questions that remain unanswered, but again, the basis of the entire thing is this is massively impressive and congrats to AEW for selling 74,000 or or distributing, I should say, at least 74,000 tickets already with one would assume thousands more to come. So with that said, let's get into the breakdowns of these shows this week. We're going to start with Collision where MJF wore an American flag uh, ring gear style and destroyed a Canadian jobber with Heatseeker and the LaBelle Lock for the squash win. He grabbed a mic and got cheap heat shitting all over Hamilton saying he'd beat anyone from there, and he'd even put his title on the line. Some big dude came out only for Ethan Page to storm past him, smack the mic out of MJF's hand, and say he's ready to prove that he's been completely overlooked in AEW. Page cut a hometown promo saying AEW can count on him, unlike MJF. The contents of this promo were really weird, especially with Page like purporting himself as some AEW supporter and like defender out of nowhere. Like it's one thing if Matt Jackson came out and cut that promo, but for Ethan Page to do it was really weird. Um, Look, there's no doubt that his mic work was strong, but the content was just odd. So we got the title match, MJF against Page. After hitting Twist of Fate, because now he's with the Hardys, Page nailed MJF with an avalanche power slam. Uh, He sold a knee then that he'd been worked all match. The knee gave out on Ego's Edge. That allowed MJF to hit a dragon screw and Heatseeker to retain the title. I like that MJF won without hitting a finisher. That was cool. Match was okay. Entire segment was quite convoluted, but it was good to see Page actually get to show something as opposed to the rest of his AEW career where he really hasn't shown much of anything. On Dynamite, MJF met Adam Cole at a gym upset that Cole wasn't wearing their new tag team shirt. MJF again tried to burrow out with him by pumping iron and making fun of a fat guy. Cole told him not to make jokes like that. 
But then said the guy reminded him of Tony Schiavone, and they both said that simultaneously. So it was a fun moment. They did a double take, and Cole was like, I can't believe I actually said that and agreed with MJF. Like you could, that was his internal thought. Uh, Cole then supposedly benched the same weight as MJF, except the camera was zoomed all the way in on Cole in the bar. So clearly the plates were taken off at this point. He lifted with less weight, and then they were put back on at the end. MJF was astonished by this. That was the gimmick. Uh, fun segment, exactly what they needed to do as this pairing continues. The out of arena, outside the ring stuff with these two has been fantastic. And it made it even more clear that they're probably at least going to get to the finals of this tournament, if not perhaps win the entire thing. But so far, so freaking good. It was very funny. So then on Dynamite later, we had MJF and Cole in their tag team match against Daddy Magic and the Butcher that's in the blind eliminator tag team draw tournament, whatever they're calling it. MJF hyped up Cole on stage during their entrance, but he refused a hug. So MJF mimicked all of his mannerisms and slapped hands with fans because he sees himself as a baby face now that he's aligned with Cole. He even did the boom with him and held the ropes as he got in the ring. This was such good shit. This is such good shit. Uh, MJF worked most of the match with Cole getting the hot tag and cleaning house rather than tag MJF in for the double clothesline as MJF asked to do repeatedly. Cole just lowered the boom and got the win. MJF hugged him after the bell and raised his arm. Then he got the crowd chanting for him. He had Cole do the Bay Bay thing. Then he got the crowd cheering for another bro session and got them chanting happy birthday with streamers going off. Then guys came out with a birthday cake. MJF serenaded Cole and had him make a wish. He told the camera that he was going to shove Cole's face in the cake just as a prank between friends, but Cole reversed him into it. Cole then said it was all a nice gesture and quote, thank you, my friend. Quick negative out of the way. It's kind of wild that they began matches in this tournament before the field was even filled out. Okay, that out of the way. Uh, MJF was phenomenal throughout all of this. This is the MJF I like. Not the 20 minute repetitive cheap heat promo guy who somehow has something in the you know his childhood that relates to every single opponent that he has, who's the devil, who makes up fake BJ stories in high school. Um, like, it, 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 that stuff was grating on me. This was creative, funny, entertaining, and we saw both guys at their best character-wise. This can't be MJF every single time. He is a piece of shit heel. That is the gimmick. But seeing this side of him playing, I said it last week, the Eric Cartman role where he just tries to best friend this guy who is otherwise his rival because he probably has another plan in the back of the head. In this case, trying to convince Cole that they're friends and maybe not challenging him for the title. It just works. It was one of the, this is one of the most entertaining storylines I think AEW has put out in its entire existence. That's how good this has been so far. On Dynamite, Swerve in Our Glory fought Darby Allen and Orange Cassidy in another blind eliminator match. Before this began, Darby told Keith backstage basically to pull his head out of his ass, do something about his station in AEW. It was like a tough love type of approach. Darby slapped Keith at the bell, so Lee chucked him across the entire ring. Orange then did his gimmick ship. Keith blocked multiple attempts at Stun Dog Millionaire, only for Darby to jump over his back for a really sick code red. Swerve then broke uh, an ensuing cover with a 450 but Orange got out of the way, so he landed flat on Keith. Another miscommunication led to Keith eating trouble in paradise from Swerve. Orange then caught Swerve with a flying DDT, and he hit Keith with a Tope Suicida flying DDT outside, with Darby trapping Swerve for the 1-2-3 as the babyfaces advanced. 
So look, this was extremely well done, starting with Darby calling out Keith. That resulted in a fist bump, by the way, after the bell, mutual respect. Plus, we got the multiple screw-ups between Swerve and Keith. Almost assuredly, fingers crossed, prayer hands to the sky, uh, assuredly leading, you would think, to the reignition of their feud. I mean, if this is not used to rekindle that and get heat back between them, with Keith hopefully getting into the upper mid-card from it, then it's truly going to be a waste of time in its entirety. I got to tell you, the Darby-Keith-Lee interactions, especially Darby being so small and Keith being so big, were far more interesting to me than anything else. Darby teaming with Orange or Swerve in Our Glory being back together. It sucks that Swerve took another L, especially with Keith not getting the W coming out of it. I'm giving this four stars and an A-, minus, and it was a banger match. Don't get me wrong either. But I want to see what happens next. Are they going to use this to develop something further? If so, great. If not, and they just threw them together because haha, blind eliminator, and they're tagging again and they're not going to feud, then it's truly going to be a waste of time. But no matter what, this was a lot of fun to watch. You could tell everyone involved was having a blast in the match. And that feeling from the performers permeated through the screen. I just had a smile on my face during this entire match for no good reason. I mean, it was good. It was entertaining. It was fun. But you could tell that these guys were having a good time and that came across and that made it so successful. Shout out to Eddie Kingston for winning the NJPW Strong Open Weight Championship. It was weird that the NJPW event basically stole, I don't know if you guys saw the logo, the old New York Rangers logo for the show. It was odd. Uh, anyway, John Moxley cut a tape promo on Dynamite saying, he hoped Kingston would forget the past and embrace the future, and he hoped that he would answer his phone. It was a really good promo for Mox, as per usual. It was then revealed that Kingston was pulled from blood and guts, as was Brian Danielson with his broken arm, but because Kingston's going to be in the G1 climax. So now there are two open spots, one mystery partner on each side. On Dynamite, Chris Jericho came out to speak wearing a Y2J style, shiny mirrored type of jacket, saying he's been losing a lot of matches and struggling as of late but being in Edmonton has reinvigorated him. He got a bunch of cheap pops about Alberta in what seemed to be a baby face turn, saying it's time to become the best version of Chris Jericho ever. He was doing his old shtick, basically. Then Don Callis came out to constant booze, taking credit for changing the course of wrestling by getting Jericho to fight Kenny Omega in Japan. Jericho, in kind, took credit for bringing Callis back into wrestling and then AEW. Callis talked about building trust and wanting Jericho in his family. Jericho said he doesn't join factions, he creates them. But in terms of a one-word answer, he said, maybe, and then walked out. Daniel Garcia and Sammy Guevara confronted Jericho about that later, but he said, hey, look, guys, no decision has been made. This was a strong segment overall. It's kind of strange that JAS were ignored in the segment itself, but it was smart that they brought it up after the fact. Then again, his animosity between Chris and Sammy that we've seen it's seemingly unresolved. So it was strange that aspect of the story was completely ignored and maybe even dropped. What's going to be really interesting to see is whether Jericho winds up siding with the elite or BCC if this is part of like blood or guts, depending whether he accepts or turns down Callus's invitation, or it could just be a tangential storyline involving Callus. But I have to assume it has something to do with blood and guts. Speaking of Omega, he fought Wheeler Yuta in the main event of Dynamite. We got a nice promo from Yuta saying he has already defeated Omega and would end him so he wasn't available for Blood and Guts. Uh, this was a hot match. Terrific, consistent, high-level work both ways. 
Omega hit a couple snap German suplexes plus a V-trigger. He sold a neck injury from earlier in the match while trying one-winged angel. So Yuta escaped and Omega kicked out of the seatbelt, which might be a first. He followed with a V-trigger when Callus came down to distract. Konosuke Takeshka came from behind and hit a blue thunderbomb. And he was able to do that because for some reason, the referee in charge of the match, seeing Don Callis come down to the ring, jumped out of the ring to confront Callis, even though there were already a half dozen security guards around him trying to prevent him from coming to the ring. But the referee thought he would get something done. Yuta hit a splash for a false finish. Omega took him off the ropes for one-winged angel and the win. Claudio Castanoli and Takeshka attacked immediately after, so the elite made the save with chairs, only for Dark Order to stop Hangman Page from using one as Dynamite went off the air. So first of all, you know, talking just straight up about the match, yes, it was indeed a banger. No surprise there, 4.25 stars and an A. Yuta was terrific, and he continues to be a great in-ring talent. I do still find him bland character-wise, but his promos have gotten better. Omega with the neck injury, I presume it was kayfabe playing on the Tiger Driver 91 spot from Forbidden Door. Let's hope that's indeed the case. The post-match, it all made sense. I'm curious whether Dark Order factors into Blood and Guts at all. It's kind of strange that Hangman is on the side quest during an extremely important uh, feud for his entire crew. Let's move to some Owen quarterfinal matches. On Collision, we had Roderick Strong against Samoa Joe. I swear that I saw the promo preview for this like four different times over the last two weeks. CM Punk was the special guest commentator as the semi-final opponent for the winner. Strong had an Olympic slam and a jumping knee. Joe moved him into the Coquina clutch for a knockout victory. After the bell, Joe hit Strong with a side slam into a steel chair. Adam Cole slid into the ring to check on Roddy after the fact. They actually loaded Strong onto a stretcher from one single move. It seemed a bit too much for me, but maybe there's a story on the back end that they're telling. Security then separated Joe and Punk before it could get contentious. Uh, Right winner, given Joe is a champion and Punk was waiting in the semifinal. Obviously, they're going back to that ROH match. It's going to be something special for fans of that. For modern fans, do they even really care? I don't know. Um, I still maintain this should have been the final of the entire tournament, but we'll see what they're doing and maybe the actual final will make more sense. On Dynamite, Strong was in a neck brace with Doc Sampson saying they will continue to monitor his recovery. Roddy said he feels great. Cole walked in saying he should take his time recovering. Strong was worried about MJF getting in with Cole, but Cole reassured him it would all be okay. Maybe they're going to do like a jealous heel turn for Roddy? I I don't know. I guess we're going to have to see. Another own quarterfinal, Britt Baker against Ruby Soho on Dynamite. Backstage before the match, Baker said Soho lied about taking everything from her because she can never take her pride, and Britt actually won the first Owen by beating Ruby. She then showed off the belt for the first time in like a year. Again, I maintain the belts are ridiculous given it is literally a cup that is awarded to the winner, so why wouldn't you show off that? Tony Storm tripped Britt, allowing Ruby to hit a Saito suplex. Baker was ready to put in lockjaw when Soraya jumped on the ring apron to distract the referee. Storm then brought the Owen title to the top turnbuckle with Ruby putting Britt's face into it and hitting no future for a false finish. So yeah, Britt kicked out of a belt shot and finisher without a delayed cover. Then Ruby tried lockjaw, but Baker countered it. The heels pulled Soho out of the ring by her feet. Baker took care of both heels outside only for Soho to eventually counter her off the ropes with a victory roll crossing Britt's legs as the heels grabbed her arm for a leverage pin and the victory. This was definitely entertaining to some degree, but holy shit, the agency was convoluted as hell. The match was clunky. It just did not work with them one-on-one. Soho 
Could have just won after the belt shot and it would have been fine. Instead, Britt was given like Super Cena booking, overcoming a one-on-three disadvantage multiple times in a non-title match, only to lose when it eventually caught up with her. I get it, she's a big name in the division, but the outcasts lack any legitimacy when literally all of their victories come like this. I still enjoyed it, but man, was this frustrating to me. Back on Collision, Bullet Club Gold came out with Jay White first commanding the mic. The guns then rhetorically asked why they joined, but didn't actually give an answer. They bragged about beating all the fan favorites and did two words for you, saying guns up as the response. White then called out CM Punk, kind of saying that he wants what's in that bag that he waved around on the debut episode of Collision, except he didn't say that. It was weird. Then he turned his attention to FTR, wanting a tag team title match for himself and Juice Robinson. I was excited to see Bullet Club together, and I was like really curious to hear how this would all work. But straight up, this was clunky as hell. It was messy. It was all over the place. Little of it actually made sense. They really need to get their shit together as a foursome. Uh, Punk appeared on screen with FTR after this. He said White can do what MJF did by going to the AEW store and buying what's in his bag. He stood up for Ricky Starks and FTR, who were in the room with him. FTR then accepted the challenge, dropping some WCW lines, and Starks was amped for his big match. The crowd was dead for this entire thing, didn't make any noise. And the idea of Punk basically claiming he's still champion, it's totally eye-rolling. It's one thing to be an unbeaten champion who relinquished the title for one reason or another, but you don't still get to claim that you're champion nine months later. And it's one thing if it's a month, two months, three months, nine months, you're getting ridiculous. Uh, we had Starks against Robinson in another Owen quarterfinal on collision. Juice locked in the cloverleaf, but Starks found the ropes. Robinson then hit a false finish by pulling on the tights. Starks missed a high-risk move and sold a knee before eating a spear. Moments later, Starks came off the ropes with his spear and then countered a jackknife cover into a seated pinning combination for the win. Bullet Club surrounded the ring after the bell with Punk and FTR evening the odds. I watched this match at 5 p.m. on a weekday. I nearly fell asleep. I'm not even exaggerating. It was shockingly boring and slow moving. I guess we got the right winner at the end of the day, but none of these guys, neither of these guys, I should say, looked good coming out of it. Powerhouse Hobbs then fought Dustin Rhodes in another quarterfinal for the Owen on collision. Dustin bladed because of course he did. He hit code red. Hobbs hit a huge spine buster. Dustin no sold it with a kick out at one. QT Marshall punched Dustin while he was hanging over the ropes with Hobbs, hitting a second spine buster for the win. So first of all, Dustin never should have been in this tournament or this match, given the AEW roster. Secondly, having this legitimate powerhouse, it's in his name, Hobbs, struggle against a guy 22 years older than him on the wrong side of 50, then having Rhodes no-sell the finisher, and then having Hobbs only win because of the help of QT Marshall. Holy shit, did they again make him look like straight garbage coming out of this? I just don't understand what they are doing with powerhouse Hobbs. This is horrendous booking. Come on, Goose. It's a joke, right? It's a joke, Goose. You ripping me? On collision, Andrade Alidolo backstage was angry that House of Black stole his mask. He kept repeating that he wanted the mask. It was like Batista doing the whole give me what I want type of thing over and over again. Give me what I want. Give me what I want. Like he just kept freaking repeating it. House of Black then appeared on screen saying, all in good time. I'm not exaggerating when I say this is one of two stories that's actually happening on Collision, the other being the main event one with Bullet Club, Punk, FTR, and Starks. Andrade was awful here. 
the storyline being based on a stolen mask is ridiculous when it actually started before the mask was stolen. It seemed like it was going to be about more. I, I just don't, I don't get it. I don't understand what they're doing here. This was shockingly bad. And I like these guys a lot, both of them. On Collision, the TBS title was on the line again. Chris Statlander against Lady Frost. Stat won with Saturday Night Fever to retain the title. It was a rough match. All we've gotten from Stat since she returned is random title defenses. It's been weeks and there is no storyline for her whatsoever. I don't even think she's cut a promo. That's absolutely crazy. Talk about not capitalizing on the end of Jade Cargill's undefeated streak, nor capitalizing on the return of one of your most popular women's wrestlers. They just put her on TV and say, Okay, wrestle a six-minute match. That's it. It's actually a joke at this point. On Collision, Christian Cage was backstage with Luchasaurus, asked why he was carrying the TNT title. He ignored the question as Sean Spears stepped up, wanting to talk to the champion. So Christian stood in front of him saying he doesn't seize opportunities because he's not dangerous. Spears said he's capable of being dangerous, and then Luchasaurus growled. So I guess that's the match that's going to happen. Uh, by the way, I should jump over to Rampage because Sean Spears defeated the Blade with C4. This preceded collision one night. This was a real match that happened on TV. Spears is 100% fully back to the perfect 10 gimmick from NXT. And also his theme is a total ripoff of his NXT theme. Like at least the chairman gimmick was kind of interesting. This is just nothing, whatever they're doing with him. Back on Dynamite, Jungle Boy pulled up in his SUV trying to cut a heel promo saying he would demand an FTW title match. So Hook attacked him for five seconds. Jack jumped back in the car and sped off. I guess the goal is for him to be a chicken shit heel, but I'd have liked a little bit more build uh, for his character after last week's promo kind of went over like a wet fart. On Rampage, the Ring of Honor title was on the line. Claudio Castanoli against Commander. The spot of the match was a tightrope draping shooting star press off the barricade. I'm 95% sure there was a moment where Commander kicked out of a three count only using his legs, like didn't move his shoulders, but the referee stopped counting anyway. Commander also hit a double jump Phoenix splash, which was cool. Claudio then caught Commander flying with a European uppercut and won via referee stoppage. I enjoy Lucha Libre as a style. I like Commander as a wrestler. Obviously, Claudio is great. But this just felt like flips for flips. And while I admit the finish was unique, it was really odd. The match just felt like it kind of happened and didn't have relevance to anything. It was a weird feeling, and I felt it the whole time I was watching it. And again, I don't understand why Ring of Honor titles are being defended for no reason without any storyline purpose on AEW television when ROH now has an entire streaming show. On Collision, Miro defeated Anthony Henry in about three minutes with a thrust kick and game over. It's been three weeks of squashes now with no storyline being started for Miro. Also, a correction from last week. Miro did not say gutless or guiltless in that promo. He said godless. Somehow, I completely misunderstood that and criticized it, but it definitely makes way, way, way more sense now. So I retract that criticism from last week. Good promo from Miro. On Rampage, Akaru Shida fought Taya Valkyrie. This was the main event. Shida looked cool with her gear and her hair. She had a Meteora running off the apron, then got thrown into the corner for a running Meteora from Taya. Shida ultimately countered Road to Valhalla with a rollover pinfall victory. Taya just stays taking L's. Decent action, but it was a main event without a storyline. I guess we got the right winner. On Rampage, Matt Hardy and Isaiah Cassidy fought Johnny TV and QT Marshall. Hardy looked like he was wrestling in molasses. He hit Johnny with side effect. Holly Cameron distracted. 
QT killed Matt outside and Johnny hit Starship Pain for the win. Commentary had no idea what the move was called. Ethan Page then stood up to the heels after the bell with a claim to making the save when I think Page got super kicked. Why is Johnny with the QTV guys, by the way? Like, I know he was part of the segment, but why is he with them? Why are all these guys involved in this feud? Why do they care about QTV? What is even the storyline here? Also, Hardy on Dynamite revealed that Jeff Jarrett was his blind eliminator partner. Now, I was ready to give credit to AEW for actually creating a fun random pairing, except later on Dynamite, Daniel Garcia and Sammy Guevara, you know, stable mates in JAS, were announced as another quote unquote random team. So of the six random teams that were announced, three have actually teamed multiple times before, and one conveniently featured the world champion and his number one contender. If you're gonna do a randomized thing, make it randomized. The the crazy teams are the only thing that makes this potentially interesting, plus MJF and Cole, obviously. Uh, But so do MJF and Cole, and then the rest random teams. They're trying to do too much with storytelling involved in it, then it's not random anymore. It's as simple as that. On Dynamite, the acclaimed and daddy ass defeated the Blade and Bollywood boys, hitting their signatures and the mic drop. Excalibur called this a great trios victory. Uh, against jobbers who are never on TV. That's a great victory. Okay, news to me. Uh, The guy scissored when Holly Cameron appeared again, saying she made a music video that she will show next week. She also called herself Ms. Money on the Mic and blew Anthony Bowens another kiss. Then Billy Gunn did two words, suck it, for no reason whatsoever. I don't know why he did it. This was so fucking weird. What the hell are they doing with the acclaimed right now? I just... Don't get it. These guys are insanely over and they're in a low card feud and they're fighting in between that low card feud, the Blade and Bollywood boys. I mean, on Dynamite of all places. Also on Dynamite, AEW began its storytelling for the forthcoming debut of Nick Wayne, the underage kid from Washington who's been signed to AEW for a couple of years. I believe he signed to when he was 16. Darby shared some of the kid's story. He lost his dad and talked about getting his back with Tony Khan to get him signed for AEW. Turns out, this wasn't the beginning of storytelling. It was the completion of storytelling for him, because at least on Dynamite, he's going to be debuting next week. So maybe they tell a little bit more on Collision. I don't know. I thought this was going to be a multi-week thing, the way it was presented. And I find that to be another missed opportunity, because they had a chance to build this kid up over three, four weeks. And instead, it's just, oh, by the way, this guy you're going to see next week, Here's some information about him. Now, don't get me wrong. That's better than debuting him without any of this. I just wish it was a little bit more of a build. It's honestly insane, by the way, for those who don't know about Nick Wayne, how good he was at 16, let alone now with two years of experience under his belt. If you want to get a little preview, Google Nick Wayne and Swerve from Defy Wrestling. Uh, Fantastic match, really shows you what he can do. He's going to be an immediate sensation in AEW. And the fact that they're investing time in him prior to his debut, even in a minimal way like this, it's something that AEW rarely does. His ceiling is substantial. If AEW actually straps the rocket to him from the start, he could be on fire to begin his career. And I'm going to be very interested to see the way they handle Nick Wayne compared to what they do with Hook. Hook, for some reason... He just feels completely stagnant in AEW, like he has nowhere to go. They're not developing his character. They're not really developing him in ring either. He's just there, and he's Taz's son, and most of the things he does are references to Taz. 
And it's just like, it's cool. Like Hook has a good look and, you know, all that stuff. But what else is there? I could totally see Hook, even though Taz is there, being one of those guys where like NXT comes calling when his contract is up and maybe he jumps over to NXT and WWE and they actually do something with him. But again, I want to see, you know, the juxtaposition between the way Nick Wayne is handled and the way Hook is handled. And that's going to tell us a lot about AEW. All right, folks, that was it for this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, breaking down everything that happened this week in AEW, not just in the news, but across Dynamite, Collision, and Rampage. I appreciate all of you listening as always. We will be back next week with at least two episodes. We're going to do WWE on Tuesday and AEW on Thursday. In terms of NXT, we will have that questionnaire out on our Twitter account at Getting Overcast. And you guys can kind of vote and provide your thoughts on what we should do with NXT, whether we continue doing the separate Wednesday show or we loop it in with AEW on Thursdays. I'm candidly okay with both. Two shows is easier than three, but separating them does give AEW a little bit more time to breathe. So there are cases to be made um, in both uh, situations, uh, both ways. Uh, For you, if you just like having, you know, this show two times a week with the exceptions of special weeks, obviously, uh, premium live events, uh, pay-per-views, we do the extra bonus shows, we separate things out, then okay, maybe that's the way it goes. Uh, We'll figure it out. The questionnaire will be there. I hope you all vote, and I would appreciate that greatly. Speaking of, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Getting Overcast, if you do not already. Uh, We do episode drops, news analysis highlights, all that good stuff, again, on Twitter and threads as well, at Getting Overcast. Two more reminders on the way out. First, that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about defies. So be sure to leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on Apple. Take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. And by the way, updating your old reviews, you're not getting past the Silver King sensors. Uh, I know some of you have done that and I appreciate you updating your reviews. It means a lot that you take the time, but I wanna save the acknowledgements on the show for people who leave new five-star reviews. So please do that and they will get read on here. Also, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because we'd love to have you as an official getting overhead. Visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. And for only $5 a month, you can support the show and you get bonus audio and news posts. Again, all over at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. I should note, while I was literally taping the show, we had a new subscriber. Your acknowledgement will come on Tuesday's WWE edition, which is the next time you will hear the soothing sounds of your boy, the Silver King. Of course, with vintage Chris Vanini joining me as well. Thanks to all of you for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. It is officially time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.